Well, just whilst we're waiting for the last few people to come back in from uh, crash and Sunday groups, uh, Ben, uh, Richard's already mentioned in his prayers, Ben asked to pass on his, well, apologies if you like, he's preaching at Kingfisher. They're a church that has really helped us out uh, in planting, both in their prayers, uh, um, their minister, what's his name? Richard Fairbairn. Richard he's come and preached at our church before as well, but Ben hasn't managed to make it over there yet. Uh, they've also helped us financially as well. Um, and so uh, that's where Ben is this morning. Um, so he was a bit sad to be missing at the start of the uh, ACT series, um, but that's where he is. Anyway, before we come to this, let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us as we um, try to understand what your word is telling us this morning. Uh, may your spirit be with us. May he open our hearts and our eyes. Uh, may we be willing to uh, hear what he has to say to us. Um, And Father, we just pray that as a result of uh, your word this morning, we will love you more, we'll have a greater confidence in you, we'll be more excited by your word. Father, we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to read you a bit of a poem to start with. It's a very famous poem. It's only the last two verses, the last two stanzas as well. It's by Robbie Burns and it's called To a Mouse. Uh, You'll know one of the famous lines in it, I'm sure. It says, But mouse friend, you are not alone. In providing foresight may be vain, as in you can't predict the future. The best laid schemes of mice and men, there's the famous line, they often go awry or go wrong, and leave us only grief and pain instead of promised joy. Still, you are blessed compared with me. The present only toucheth thee. But, oh, I backward cast my eye on prospects drear, and forward though I cannot see, I just guess and fear. So it's a really famous poem, The Best Laid Plans of Mice and Men. He can't tell the future. He says, oh, at least the mouse only cares about the present, whereas I've tried to plan, and the past has all gone wrong. And then I look forward, and I don't know what's happening in the future, and so I just guess, and I'm frightened, I don't know what's coming. And maybe you felt a bit like this. Uh, you've tried to plan, and it just doesn't work out. Um, this has happened to me and Heather numerous times. We've been off on holiday, we've packed, uh, we have got on the aeroplane, we've got to the other side. This, this part has only happened once. Um, and our suitcase wasn't there. So all of our planning, first time we'd gone away with a little baby, we had planned swimming nappies, everything, and uh, nothing turned up. Um, and so we were without them for three or four days. Um, and you're just thinking, what? What is going on? Um, Maybe something else as well, you know, you're, you're, you get to the airport, you're thinking everything's all right, you get delayed uh, for seven hours with two little boys. Uh, this has happened to us as well. Um, and you, we, you plan and things just don't always go right. In fact, sometimes they completely get turned upside down. And in our passage today, I think that's exactly what's going on. God's plans, are they being turned upside down or not? Jesus chose Judas, as one of his most intimate disciples. So you'll see later, when we get there, there's about 120 of them at the moment. But he picked 12, and they're the apostles. But did he get it wrong? Was he like our poem at the start? Was he looking into the future, making plans, but actually had no idea that this was going to happen? And what about the apostles and the disciples that are left? Are are they meant to be looking forward in fear 
guessing and not really knowing what's going on? You know, are they meant to be thinking, well, God's kind of mucked up a bit here because he picked Judas and it's all gone wrong? And our passage today helps us answer all of those questions. So let me remind you where we are in Acts. This is only our second week in the series. And last week, Ben told us about uh, the beginning of Acts, uh, that it was written by Luke uh, to a guy called Theophilus, and that he's going to try and tell him the whole truth and exactly what's going on, which is why we find out about Judas today. They don't try and sweep it under the carpet and pretend it didn't happen. He's going to tell him everything. And the message from last week was that the apostles have got a task to do. Just before Jesus was going to ascend to heaven, he told them, and he told them this back in verse 8. He said, uh, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So they've got a job to do. They've got to be witnesses. Witnesses of Jesus, witnesses of the resurrection, locally, and then a bit further out, and then all the way further out uh, to the ends of the world. So Ben told us last week that we are to speak the good news, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that Camborne is the ends of the earth. So they've been promised the Holy Spirit to come, but then we get this bit in the middle. So next week the Holy Spirit will come, so they've been promised it, the Holy Spirit's about to come next week, if you like, but in the middle we get this bit about replacing Judas. So look at verse 12. Jesus has ascended into heaven and the apostles return to Jerusalem. It's about a Sabbath day's walk from the city. That's about a one kilometre. So they've got a, a relatively short walk home. And I imagine that they are thinking of everything that Jesus has just told them. But I'm sure they're also thinking, well, how long until the Spirit comes? What are we meant to be doing? Uh, are we going to get attacked just like Jesus did? What are the high priests and the Jewish religious authorities going to do to us as well? What are people saying about us? Because one of our own people is an inside job. Someone betrayed us from the inside. They're going to be laughing at us. It seems like everything is a complete disaster. Before everything's even got going, it's all gone horribly wrong, hasn't it? God's mucked up. Well, look at verse 13. They arrive, they go upstairs to the room and look at who's there. So I've got a list for you to compare. Um, here are the two times that Luke has told us about the apostles. So the first one, that's in Luke, uh, chapter 6, I think. And this is the one that we've got here uh, in Acts. So have a quick look. What's the elephant in the room? <laughs> it's obvious, isn't it? But go on, someone tell me, shout it out. Right, Judas isn't there. Right. So, in this one here, there's only 11. You're like, what? There's only 11? There should be 12. Jesus chose 12. The last time Luke told us about the 12, there was 12. And now he gives us the next list. The next time he gives us a list, there's only 11. And so he's telling us that something's wrong and something's missing. There really should be 12. And what a failure, what, what, what a spectacular failure that at the very start of their ministry without Jesus, one of them isn't there. But the first thing we see is that actually God is in control. 
that it's not a failure at all. God hasn't mucked up. Actually, his plans and his promises are going to come true. They can never be stopped, and they can never be blocked. So look at verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120. And he said to them, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled, in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas. So Peter stands up, and they've been praying. We see that in verse 14. They've been constantly praying. And I imagine they've been reading their scriptures, the Old Testament, and they've been remembering the different things Jesus had said to them. And Peter realises that this was all part of God's plan. He goes right back to King David about a thousand years before this. And actually, he says, the Holy Spirit was speaking to us in the Psalms to tell us that this is exactly what God had planned. He planned all of it. In fact, more emphatic than that, it had to happen. Because if it didn't happen, God was lying back in the Old Testament, which he can't do. So it was a necessity that Jesus did, that Judas did uh, what he did. So God hasn't mucked up. God's plans haven't failed. This was all planned. And in verse 17, he doesn't shy away from from the obvious. Peter says, he was one of our number. He shared in our ministry. So like we said, this was the most intimate of betrayals. It was an inside job, and yet even that was part of God's plan. God was not taken by surprise at all. This is not a kind of, uh, like when you're in the car and the sat-nav, you've you've gone the wrong way, and it says that it's now rerouting, because uh, you're now going an extra five miles out of the way. Um, This is not what God is doing here. God isn't having to kind of reroute his plans and like, oops, oh, I didn't see that coming. And, uh, oh, we better now get another disciple and another apostle. And uh, none of that is happening. It was all planned by God long ago. If you get into verse 20, you start to see exactly where this was foreshadowed and foretold so long ago. So in verse 20, Peter says, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it. So this was a prayer uh, in the Psalms of David uh, praying for some sort of judgment and this was originally David's prayer. And yet Peter interprets it much like Jesus interpreted the Old Testament as pointing forwards to a greater moment usually involving Jesus. In fact, Jesus himself even quoted from Psalm 69. So that verse there, may his place be deserted, you can see in the footnotes from Psalm 69, verse 25. But back in John 15, John chapter 15 and verse 25, you don't have to turn to it if you don't want to, but John 15, verse 25, uh, Jesus quotes from Psalm 69 himself. And so back in John 15, verse 25, Jesus says, This is to fulfill what is written in their law. They hated me without reason. 
So Jesus has already quoted from Psalm 69 himself to say, actually, this is about me, really. And so now Peter does exactly the same thing and takes a bit further on in Psalm 69 and says, this was all about Jesus and Judas betraying him. So it was spoken of so long ago and it's fulfilled finally in what Judas did. Now we see exactly where it's being fulfilled if we go back to verse 18 and 19. So it's in a strange kind of order, like the the verse comes afterwards, but the fulfilment is just before it. So in verse 18, we find out what happened to Judas. With the payment he received for his wickedness, Judas bought a field, and there he fell headlong. His body burst open and his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called the field in their language Akeldama, and that is the field of blood. So Judas's place has definitely been deserted, uh, whether that's his field or his body. And God's judgment has clearly come in Judas's death. No one now lives in that field or in his body. So the promise made hundreds, about a thousand years before, has now come true finally and completely in what happened to Judas. So in some way that we just won't ever understand, Judas's betrayal is all part of God's plans. And so rather than Judas somehow frustrating God's plans. And, 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 and it says in, in one of the Gospels that Satan entered into Judas. And so Satan was not frustrating God's plans either. In fact, they were carrying out God's plans. Now, I don't think this is the main point of the passage, but that doesn't mean that Judas isn't still responsible for what he did. So divine sovereignty, God being in control and nothing catching him by surprise, and human responsibility, they go together. And they've got to be held in some sort of tension together. Judas was fully responsible for what he did. And so he must therefore be a warning to us that we can be very close to God outwardly, in the way that things look, and yet our hearts can be very far from him. So I think we should see this as a, a, as a warning to us. But I think the bigger message is that God is in control and that his plans can't be blocked. And so what does, it, what does this mean for us today then? Well, if you think of very public I know, religious leaders falling and sinning, so I don't know, um, you see in the news, don't you, about um, vicars and things like this abusing kids or ministers having affairs and running off with other women. These are very public ways that people sin, public Christians sin, uh, sin. But we still need to believe that even though these are horrible things, they don't catch God by surprise and that they're not going to stop God's work. So I'm sure Ben wouldn't mind me saying this, but you know, if he was to sin in a major way, in a very public way, that doesn't mean that God's plans in Camborne are over. Because nothing can stop his plans. Or on a more everyday level, maybe you feel there are times when things just look a bit out of control. So here's a, just a really trivial example. When we were moving to Camborne, we bid on a house. It looked like we, we'd got it. It got accepted. But unbeknownst to us, someone else had already bid on the house. And theirs had been accepted. So both people had been accepted, 
and the other people got it. And so then we were thinking, oh, maybe our plans to move to Camborne and God's plans for us to be here aren't actually God's plans. And so we were all a bit confused and it seemed like things were just a bit out of control. And yet within a few weeks, uh, we had a house uh, that we were not the highest bidders on and it was accepted and uh, we moved here. And so, you know, it's a silly example, but, you know, sometimes things feel out of control and yet it's only afterwards that we see that God was working out his plans even in disappointments and even in discouragements. And so maybe things feel out of control for you at the moment. So I hope that this is an encouragement to you that God is in control and that nothing gets in the way of his plans and his promises and that nothing ever catches him by surprise. Now that doesn't mean that we can never be discouraged and that we should never ever be sad but it means that in those discouragements we can take encouragement from the fact that God is working and that nothing stops him. And for us as a church, we need to go back to verse 8 as well that we saw last week. We are his witnesses in Camborne at the ends of the earth. And nothing will stop God's plans for spreading his good news here. Nothing can block that promise. He has said he wants it to happen. Nothing can get in the way. And so he will spread his message in Camborne. And we can take great confidence from that. But he's going to do it. And he wants to use us. And this is true for all of the promises in the New Testament. We can be absolutely certain that because God is in control, and even in control when it really seems like he's not, that we can trust him in everything. And so this is where we come to the second point that I think we see in this passage. If God's in control and nothing blocks his purposes, we can trust him in everything knowing that he is still at work. So we saw the first one of the Old Testament uh, prophecies, but if you carry on in verse 20, there's another one. It's from another psalm, Psalm 109 this time. He says, and, second half of verse 20, may another take his place of leadership. So if God's plans came true for Judas, and that was necessary then it must, this must also be necessary. And verse 21 tells us that. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one to replace Judas. So in order to fulfil the promises of God, another man has to be picked. There needed to be 12. They were a picture of the Old Testament, the tribes of Judah, the 12 tribes of Israel. And so for there to be some sort of completeness, for there to be some sort of restoration there needed to be 12 before the Holy Spirit was given. So just because God has promised it, they needed to do it. And they could trust that it was the right thing because they've already seen one of the things being fulfilled already in Judas. And so this next thing will be fulfilled as well. They can trust it because of God's past promises. But don't forget verse 14 as well. They are praying at the same time. So they're not just randomly taking verses out of the Bible and trying to misinterpret them. This is all done in a culture of prayer. And that might strike us a bit odd. You know, God has made these massive promises. He's basically said, I've planned everything out. I know exactly what's going to happen. And perhaps, I don't know, that might lead us to think, well, what's the point in praying then? 
What's the point in praying if God's already done it all and God's planned it all already? And that's, that's not what they think at all. In fact, the complete opposite. But because God has made his promises, that gives us a reason to pray in the first place. And it gives us the certainty that he will answer our prayers. Because he wants to do it, and because he's planned to do it. So it should give us even more boldness and certainty when we are praying. So God has said he wants to take the good news to the ends of the earth. So we can pray that for Camborne. He wants it to happen. We can pray confidently and boldly because he's still at work. Now, I think there are some times where we think that we are kind of twisting God's arm a bit and he doesn't really want to do it. And like, oh, come on, you know, like, I'd love to see my friends saved. Why don't you want to? Well, like, we couldn't be further off the mark there. God wants to do it. So pray and trust that he wants to do it. He is still at work. And in fact, if we're not praying at all, we're, we're not really trusting that, that God is working at all. We don't really believe he's in control and wants to do anything. Otherwise, we'd pray, wouldn't we? And so that's exactly what the disciples are doing. They are praying and looking at the Bible. Like Prayer by its very nature is dependent, isn't it? It's saying, we can't do it. We need you. And we're relying on you. And we're saying, you are still at work. Otherwise, there'd be no point praying if God didn't have anything left to do. So whether we're telling others about Jesus, like Ben was telling us last week, or whether it's making decisions, we rely on God in prayer. Trusting his word and trusting that he is still in control. And so we see them trusting in verse 21 onwards. They trust that God wants them to pick someone. And we see them trusting God in choosing who they do. Because part of what Jesus told them just before he ascended to heaven was that they needed to be witnesses. Witnesses of Jesus' life. Witnesses of Jesus' death. Witnesses of the resurrection. And so we see in verse 21 onwards, in verse 22, that the person that is going to replace Judas needs to have been there for all of that stuff. So verse 22, he needed to have been there from the beginning of John's baptism of Jesus to the time when Jesus was taken and someone who had witnessed the resurrection at the end of verse 22. So they are trusting God and being obedient to him by listening to his commands and then picking someone that fits in line with that. So the new apostle needed to be a witness of everything that had happened. And so they come up with a short list of about two men. Verse 23. Joseph called Barsabbas, or in his Roman name, Justus, and Matthias. And then they pray again. And they pray in verse 24, Lord, this is Jesus, you know everyone's hearts. Show us which of these two you have chosen. So they believe that Jesus has already picked someone. And so they pray saying, show us this. They acknowledge that Jesus is still at work. Only he can pick an apostle. And so he has to do it. And so they cast lots. They like draw straws, if you like. Uh, this was a common way that they did things in the Old Testament to try and find out what God, God wanted. Um, we should probably say at this point, this never happens after this point in the whole of the New Testament. 
Uh, I don't think this is probably how we should be making decisions now. Um, after the Holy Spirit has been given, uh, the Holy Spirit is there to give us uh, guidance and wisdom. And so from this point onwards, in the whole of Acts and the whole of the New Testament, no decision is ever taken by drawing lots. Um, but they are still at a point before the Holy Spirit has been poured out. And so this was, this was good biblical guidance. And so Jesus chooses Matthias to replace Judas. So the main point isn't the casting of Lot's thing, it's the fact that Jesus is the one that picks. And this is great news, isn't it? Like this, this is great news for us, that Jesus still cares about his church. He is still interested in it. He doesn't just ascend to heaven and say, right, go on and get on with it now. Um, he takes an active role through his spirits. So as a church in Campbell here trying to spread the good news, we should never feel that we're on our own. And like I said, we should never feel like we're trying to twist his arm into anything. Jesus is at work. He cares. Richard said this earlier. He cares about what we are doing. He wants his church to grow. So we can be confident that Jesus is active. We can be confident that God is in control. Look how it ends in verse 26. They cast lots, the lot fell on Matthias, and so he was added to the 11. So exactly what needed to happen, happened. They've now back up to 12. Things have been restored and they are now ready for the Holy Spirit to be given. So God cares. He's in control. He has his plans and they will happen. And so we can be bold and we can be confident and we can trust God. So even when things are difficult, and let's be honest, I mean, there are 11 of them Plus a few more to make it up to 120. What's that? Yeah, can't do that. 109. Uh, uh, Ish. And uh, there's not many of them to try and spread this news to the ends of the earth, is there? Like they're in a pretty difficult situation, and yet they were able to trust God. We've got the whole of the revelation from the rest of the New Testament about how God is at work, plus the whole of church history about how God has been at work, plus how God is at work at the moment in the lives of your friends. And even if it feels like sometimes there's not much happening in, in, in the UK sometimes, you can see in other parts of the world massive movements of God. So we can be massively confident that God's plans take place and that nothing can stop it. We can trust God. So I started with Robbie Burns's poem and I want to end with a chorus from a song. It's in your handouts. Uh, maybe some of you know this, I don't know. It's quite it's relatively famous. It says, I know who holds the future and he'll guide me with his hand. With God, things don't just happen. Everything by him is planned. So as I face tomorrow with its problems large and small, I'll trust the God of miracles and I'll give to him my all. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are in control, that you are on the throne. That Jesus is beside you, reigning. Oh, we need to see this. Oh, we need to see it more clearly than we do. We need to really believe it. And then we need to trust you. So Father, just we pray that you will give us the faith to believe that what you have said will happen, will happen. And that we can trust you. That we can be confident that nothing stops your plans and your purposes. And Father, may that make us bold in witnessing for you and bold in believing your word. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, well, for, for those of you that are new, we usually have a few minutes to um, uh, think about the sermon and to try and ask some questions about it. Um, I've put some up here on the screen. Feel free to ignore them. Um, but we usually have about five minutes for you to talk on your tables about something that either you didn't quite understand uh, or maybe something that, you, that, that, that stood out for you. Um, and then usually we have a bit of time to feedback some of those uh, uh, questions or comments at the end. Uh, if you're by yourself or if you're not with many people, maybe join with someone else uh, uh, to have a chat about this. But shall we say a couple of minutes and then someone will come around with a microphone and we'll, we'll see if there's any questions. Anyone have any comments or questions um, from today? Any? Yeah. Okay, so I was wondering, um, you spoke about the fact that there have to be 12 of them, mm-hmm. and later on they end up with Paul as well, yeah. which makes 13, and he says yeah. that he is an apostle. Um, do you think it's a possible interpretation of this passage um, that they're, they're actually incorrect in trying to find a replacement at this point, yeah. and it was going to be Paul all along, but yeah. it didn't matter? Or do you, what, why have you chosen yeah. that actually, no, they were right? Yeah, yeah. no, that's a really good question. Um, I'm thankful that I read commentaries that answered this question, otherwise I wouldn't have known. Uh, so they, 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 people say, and I think this is true, that actually Paul doesn't fulfil all of these qualities for some of these 12. He wasn't there from the very beginning. Um, he, he wasn't a, a, a witness of the death. Yes, he, he did witness the resurrected Jesus. And so in that sense, he is an apostle. But for these 12, it seems like it was clear they needed to be witnesses of right from the start. And so, no, people say that, that they were right in picking uh, a, a 12th person at this point. Um, and that actually waiting for Paul would have been too late because really they needed some sort of completeness before the Holy Spirit was poured out on them, which is kind of acting like the restoration of Israel at that point. Um, I mean, you could even say that actually you've then got uh, Barnabas, who maybe could be seen as an apostle as well, maybe, uh, some people reckon. But uh, no, so I, th- I think they weren't wrong in picking him here, uh, because I don't think Paul fulfills all of these qualities, even though he is an apostle because he saw the resurrected Jesus. Yeah. Um, just a point on that. Is it also the case that um, Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, mm. and these the, the twelve are the apostles to the tribes of Israel. Um, if, you, if you look at in the book of uh, Revelations where, where it talks about um, the foundation stones and there are twelve of them, Christ even says each of you at some point in his ministry he talks to the twelve and says, even though he was also speaking to Judas, but he speaks to them and says, uh, you will also you, you will rule with him with me. Something along mm-hmm. those lines. I don't I don't remember, quite remember the phrase, mm-hmm. but there's a sense in which. The twelve have their role to Israel and, and Judah, um, while Paul is for the rest of us. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I mean, undoubtedly Paul goes to the Gentiles. But some of these, well, we don't know much about them, but people think that Matthias ended up, um, I forget where it was exactly. Cyprus or? No, it wasn't, it was Ethiopia. They, they reckon he may have, you know, some of the church historians think that that's where he might have gone, which would have been to the Gentiles as well. So I don't think it's just necessarily that um, these people were only for the Jews, these 12. But I do think you're right that they, they represent some sort of fullness of Israel. Yeah. Um, yeah, Richard. 
Uh, can I ask a, a naughty question? <laughs> uh, I don't mean to be naughty, but I, I ask this to try and be helpful to people. Um, in Matthew 27, verse 5, it, it says that Judas um, went out and hanged himself. Mm-hmm. And here in Acts, it says he fell headlong and burst open. Mm-hmm. So my question is twofold. Is Firstly, how did Judas die? And does the Bible contradict itself? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, again, you know, people do talk about this. The conscious do mention that they can easily be harmonised. Um, there's no reason why Judas can't have hanged himself and then also fallen off. He he could either have um, swollen up his body and then uh, been cut down by someone uh, after he died and then he fell onto the ground or onto the rocks and then burst open, having kind of swollen up in the heat like dead bodies would do. Um, Or if no one came and chopped him down uh, and cut, cut, cut the rope, he could have fallen down after a period of time anyway, and, and spilled open after, after that period of time. So I, I don't know whether he died. I assume he probably died from strangulation first before he was cut down. If his body had already kind of swollen up that much, he'd probably been up there for a while. Um, so no, I, th- I think you can easily accept both, both versions, and so I don't think the Bible does contradict itself. Uh, I think uh, they're just coming at it from different angles. Um, we're speaking on our table as well about how the, the, the point of the passage here seems to be that it's a really public thing that everyone knows about. And the extra addition here is that everyone knows it's called the field of blood. And it's either because of Judas's blood or because of kind of the blood money from Jesus that he used to be able to pay for this field. Um, the other contradiction could be some people say Judas bought the field and in other places it seems like actually uh, it was the religious leaders that bought the field after he gave them back the money. And so, again, it could be a contradiction there, but I don't think there is, because it was Judas's money. Whether he gave it back first or, or bought it first, I don't think it really matters. Um, so, no, I don't think the Bible contradicts itself. Yeah. Thank you, John. Um, we're running out of time. Sorry, but could I also uh, make a point on that? Um, that's an interesting question. Um, but if you think about it, suppose both accounts were exactly the same then it would be the case that there was only one original account, right? So an important question to ask yourself is, what are the facts? So the facts are that Judas died, and he died in a bad way. There's a field involved. Now, (laughs) whether or not he, he was hung on a tree, it really doesn't matter. And you see this throughout the scriptures, especially in the Gospels, which are very central for us, that the account of Jesus as you read through the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and even you read part of what Paul wrote, you see contradictions. But the question is, what are the facts? And there are several facts you can adduce from this, um, the writings of the, the apostles. And it is the facts that matter the most from which you derive an explanation of the facts. Um, and this is really important because sometimes when we look at scripture and we say, wow, it looks like you know, these people are all over the place. But think about it in, the, in, the, in, the, if in a court of law, all the witnesses were saying exactly the same thing. Mm. I mean, there really wouldn't be any case, and it would be easy for the prosecution to say that this is coaching, or all the mm. witnesses have agreed to the same testimony. Mm. So I think it's important that there are variations in the story, because that gives us confidence that they are independent mm-hmm. uh, witnesses, 
And we should look for the facts. And once you find the facts, we ask, what is the best explanation for the fact? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're right. Like, I think the Lee Strobel book, Case for Christ, goes into that kind of stuff where eyewitness testimonies should be slightly different. Otherwise, they're not really eyewitness testimonies. They've just all got together to come up with the same story. Yeah, good. Um, well, we should probably um, sing our last song. Um, so, who has held the oceans in his hands? Who has numbered every grain of sand? And if you kind of get to here, um, you get to see he is on the throne... He is in charge. Who are we to question him? His plans do uh, happen and nothing can get in the way. So let's stand and let's sing confidently that we have a great God that is in control. Let's stand and sing.